The Vatsunia of Tomorrow, The Justice of Fossil Fuels, Episode 8. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, I'm filling in as the guest, which means you get to hear my thoughts on a topic that I'm doing research on or preparing for my online teaching. Recently, different things I've been reading came together to force me to question what is an equitable energy transition. And here today, I cover a view from the 1970s. I bring in Ivan Illich and Kurt Vonnegut Jr. and apply some concepts from more recent thoughts around Amartya Sen on equity. The result is an examination of the limitations of the earth and the inequality within our social and energy systems. I pursue a line of thought around the limits to our time on earth and the carrying capacity of the earth, mainly in terms of climate change. The purpose is to prompt some thoughts on what is an equitable energy transition and the time it takes to implement this. Please consider the work here as a draft. Okay, so this is not my definite position, but these are through uh, some concepts I'm, I'm working through and trying to bring together. So this is a, there's a lot of concepts and connections that still need to be clarified, but nonetheless, we all have to begin to think along new lines at some point. And so here, I'm trying to begin to redefine and address what a just energy transition is, but from, from a new perspective. And in this episode, I kind of try to draw in the, the concept of time rather than a spatial assessment of what is energy equity. Thank you for joining this episode of the My Energy 2050 podcast. If you do find this interesting at all, please share it on social media. I'm interested in any, any feedback as well. So thank you. And now for this week's episode. The Vesunia of Tomorrow, The Justice of Fossil Fuels. Even Illich wrote in 1974, quote, The energy policies adopted during the current decade, 1970s, will determine the range of social relationships a society will be able to enjoy by the year 2000. If we go back and look, we can begin to map the energy consumption since the 1970s, which indicates we chose a high consumption route with low social benefits. Now, an equitable energy transition requires observation of overall consumption of our energy resources. Certain groups, whether divided by country, region, or or social strata, need to ensure an equitable range of consumption. So, rather than seeing our natural resources as limitless, we need to perceive the consumption of the resources as finite as time. Even if these resources exist in the future, we do threaten the viability of the future by over-consuming our resources. So this is kind of basic stuff, but basically it means let's not burn everything today, right? We can save it for the future. And, and this is actually quite important because framing our present climate crisis, we can consider society borrowed against the future of the environment and society. So all the CO2 that's gone up, right, rather than being spread over thousands of years, we decided to go on a fast track. So we are now stuck in a downward spiral dealing with the effects of climate change due to the overconsumption of fossil fuels. And here I bring in Kurt Vonnegut. So another view from the 1970s is provided by Kurt Vonnegut in his book Jailbird. Now at this point I have a quote. It's when the main character recounts the story of the tragedy of how life ended on another planet. 
But they ran out of time on Vetsunia, the main character says. The tragedy of the planet was that its scientists found ways to extract time from topsoil and the oceans and the atmosphere to heat their homes and power their speedboats and fertilize their crops with it, to eat it, to make cloche out of it. I don't know what that is, but it's something. And so on. They serve time at every meal, fed it to household pets, just to demonstrate how rich and clever they were. They allowed great gobbets of it to putrefy to oblivion in their overflowing garbage cans. And then he says, On Vitsunia, says the judge, we lived as though there were no tomorrow. And yet, by the time he was 50, the judge, only a few weeks of future remained. Great rips of reality were appearing everywhere. I really like that story um, in Jailbird, just about the use of the natural natural resources. Here it's framed as, as time, right? But in a sense, Vonnegut really gets to the point in distilling and making this parallel, basically, right, with fossil fuels, that it's not fossil fuels, but it's time that was consumed, right? And in this overconsumption of natural resources, it's actually we've used up this time, right? We, we've overconsumed. We and we tie it in with uh, with Illich's uh, idea, right, that our social relations by the year two thousand will be determined by the path that we've taken. So, looking back over the past fifty years provides us with a clear picture of the choice humans took. They burnt the fossil fuels to speed up economic development and live like there was no tomorrow. It was the pursuit of fast economic development with an understanding that this type of energy consumption was lifting millions out of poverty. There's always the argument that we need to have economic development to lift people out of poverty, but there's a lot more to it than than just that. Um, I'm not able to get into everything today, but let's continue this. So the perspective of the past 50 years can be seen in the total energy consumption. And here I have a figure, right? It shows consumption of China and India and many other developing countries relying on fossil fuels to create economic growth and improve society. And this is like a narrative. It seems governments did not have a choice but to build a fossil fuel energy system. Now, looking at the choices made, it is only recently that renewables begin to tick upward well, only coal begins to level off. So you can't really see the, the diagram I have here. If you can go to the website uh, and, and click on it, you can read what I'm kind of reading here. But, but basically, think of the charts of China and India and how much uh, fossil fuels they're using, their expon- exponential uh, growth in consumption of gas, oil, and coal over the years. And essentially now we have the developed countries or developed regions of the world which are leveling off in their consumption of fossil fuels. And so this is kind of an important point because if we reflect on Illich, basically he's talking about a a high consumption route or a low consumption route. And my point here is that we're really consuming a huge amount. We've consumed in the past 50 years, it actually lines up quite nicely with the 1970s for some of the data I've put in here, but also we can look at studies about the the use of the Earth's uh, resources. And since the 1970s, there's really been a dramatic uptick. I, I kind of am aware of this just because I was born in 1973. So it really aligns with my time even on this Earth and, and the damage that's been done. Um, 
So let's keep keep going here. The, the scientists have found more and more efficient ways to extract fossil fuels from the Earth, right? Just like on on, uh, on the planet Vesunia, right? The scientists are at work extracting the power from from the Earth. So most recently, this is the form of shale gas using hydraulic fracturing technologies to create fissures of natural gas and oil. This technique ensures lower economic costs and the perpetuation of fossil fuels as the main driver for national economies. The United States switched from being an oil and gas importer to exporter because of this technology. The prosperity of countries and societies dependent on these fossil fuels and the, businesses and the business of science behind it. The fossil fuel economy moves ahead regardless of the impact on future generations. Just like on the planet Vitsunia, we live as there is no tomorrow, and only now we begin to see the rips of reality in the form of disappearing ice caps, desertification, firestorms consuming towns, and throw in your natural disaster, I don't know, wiping out of polar bears, whales, whatever you want, right? Human camality, but not just humans, it's the environmental uh, impact there. And but this is important then. We have the human development realm. Okay, so the even uh, Ivan Ivan Illich, who I mentioned at the beginning, he was a Jesuit priest, and he outlined the choices we had in the 1970s. He laid out two scenarios for society society to take, which would determine how we live in the year 2000. So we can look at that International Energy Agency coming up with their scenarios, but he had two basic ones. Right, he provides a low energy policy which allows for a wide choice of lifestyles and cultures. The second scenario is a high-energy consumption one, where social relations are dictated by technocracy, technocracy and will be equally distasteful whether labeled capitalist or socialist. So that's kind of all in quotes there. right? So it doesn't matter whether it's a capitalist system, a socialist system, communism or whatever look at china right uh, look at the former soviet union look at the current the countries now uh or look at the yeah the soviet union and the former soviet union right it was huge huge amounts of consumption of of natural resources to create this economic growth that was is simply environmentally unsustainable okay so the low energy policy ascribes to a rational approach to energy consumption with an upper national limit thereby ensuring greater energy efficiency and a higher level of equity for society. So now we're going to get into equity, because equity is really important. The upper echelons of society must also limit energy use just as the lower or even 90% portions of society limits their energy consumption to do costs. So if I was going to do a really great analysis here, I would look into... Uh, and produce and find some charts that would show the bottom portions of society and what the percentage is there compared to the upper echelons of society, like the highest or the richest 10% of society and, and the wealth gap between them, right? So there's a huge um, gap both in, you could say, in health terms, maybe where people live. So all, the, all these things, I'm, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you, you're probably aware of, Okay. So, social well-being is connected to per capita energy use. However, for a low energy route, there needs to be a limited use by the elites. And I'm kind of throwing in the word elite in here without really defining it. So, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to be careless. Um, Used by elites of their energy consumption with resource management and a thermodynamic thrift for industry. So, Elage brings in here 
Um, I don't think I cite him in this paragraph, so I'll have to make that correction. But um, he, he really looks at there's the elites, right? The well-off people in society are using a huge amount of resources. And if we can kind of consider the present-day lockdown and lack of air travel, who was doing most of the air travel in the past, right? So even just kind of on that, on that kind of uh, example. But also the thermodynamic thrift for industry. And this has really picked up the past few years, right? Industry needs to invest into um, greater efficiency, okay? And actually, uh, some of that's in my book that's coming out um, this month, actually. So, uh, but low energy consumption by all of society and industry, according to Illich, produces a more equitable, equitable energy system. Kind of goes without saying, but I mean, it's kind of like um, slow growth over time. Okay. Looking back to the back, the world chose the high energy scenario in pursuit of economic and social development. No limits on consumption and behavior akin to the planet Vitsuna where our use of oil-based plastics is akin to our overflowing garbage cans with plastic packaging and objects. So our present wealth derives from our scientific discoveries, which opens up an equity gap where the seen route to economic and social prosperity is to also participate in the pursuit of consumer goods rather than the pursuit of equity. So think about that, right? Uh, the idea there is every Chinese or every Indian owns a refrigerator, a TV, you know, just like in America or everyone has a car, right? It's completely, completely unsustainable. But yet this is our economic system. And regardless of, of political system, it's our complete like almost social system, uh, how countries operate, trying to produce a higher GDP reliant on a huge amount of energy resources to fuel that economic growth. And now uh, we have an interesting map, and I won't get into all the other great details around this. It relates to the Human Development Index, and I'll be publishing with other people a lot more stuff on this in the future. But here we can start to see in 2000, the year 2000 in this map, I have a figure one here, um, Elish's choice can be shown, really. Like, how did, what, what's the world like in 2000? And here we can see the connection of economic growth to the use of energy can be seen as coupled with energy consumption and economic output, represented by the connection between megawatt hours of consumed energy compared to the total primary energy footprint okay, of a country. And here, I'm not going to break that down. It's kind of self-explanatory, total primary energy footprint, right? How much uh, energy is consumed, um, in, in, in a country and yeah and how sustainable that is so that all should be unpacked but I'm not going to unpack it the main point is there's some countries that are better more that are delinking their economic growth from their energy consumption so that's the main point of this diagram so accounting for a country's footprint is a well-established method to trace the total this is quote a well-established method to trace the total resource needs and environmental impacts of a country's consumption, unquote, or end quote. In the below map, we can see the degree countries have and have not decoupled their economic growth for energy consumption. So the big thing here, and on this map, we can start to see the countries that have and have not. And there's actually things I don't like about this map, but it's a nice map. And since we're talking about the world, it's kind of important to consider here. But um, here we can see like Canada and North America or United States. So North America, 
many European countries. It's hard to make them all out. Um, even even Russia have ha, are and are uh, decoupling their economic growth from their energy consumption. One could make some arguments about the the data that goes into this, but but it just kind of gives you a general idea of who's consuming a huge amount uh, compared to who is maybe transitioning to a much more lower or uh, de- as I mentioned, decoupling their economic system from the energy consumption. So they're still producing a lot of goods or services accounted for in the GDP, but they're consuming less energy for that amount being produced. Okay, so um, and maybe in the West you can kind of consider a lot of production of through services, right? So the use of services to generate uh, revenue and money and tax dollars compared to maybe some other countries that actually do need to produce goods, maybe, for example, China, to get the same economic wealth going. And, of course, there's a lot of historical legacy here. But the the main thing here now is the identification for the threshold for the energy footprint aligns with Elitch's identification of, quote, the need for, for limits on per capita use of energy must be theoretically recognized as a social imperative, end quote. So this is interesting because the disparity in the 1970s was identified by comparing the energy and transport. This is what he outlines again in his book, quote, 250 million Americans allocate more fuel than is used by 1.3 billion Chinese and Indians for all purposes. So here we have this uh, huge disparity uh, in the 1970s between America and China and India. And those that know the history and the economic development uh, of these countries and the changes over over the past 50 years can really, really um, understand how, how this has occurred, right? But then also, it's also quite shocking, I think, to think about the present situation and the huge economic development that's gone into these countries over the past 50 years and, and lifting people yeah, out of poverty, in a sense, in a very quick, quick manner. So the dramatic economic growth of China and India since the 1970s can be seen by the huge increase of energy production and consumption, so that by 2014, these countries' economic growth were directly connected to their energy consumption. To economically grow the economies through a quick route required tremendous scaling up of energy production to deliver economic growth for their societies. While the developed countries also pursued this route, they are now leveling off and decoupling this growth. So this macro perspective of the GDP to energy footprint footprint ratio covers up the internal disparities between the elites of each country and the disproportionate consumption of energy. So if in the 1970 the disparity was observable at the macro perspective between countries, right? Looking at the map, you can see the disparities between the the American consumer and the average uh, Indian or Chinese, right? In the 2000s, the internal disparities, even in developing countries, is even more observable. Here, I'm not bringing any kind of specific uh, data in for, for lack of time, but still. But so too are the huge... Tra- but, but here's an interesting example I use. But so too are the huge transport networks in China and India, observable for moving the population around at a quick pace. The impact of the choice made in the 1970s in the year 2000 is clear. So think about the, the infrastructure, uh, transport infrastructure that's been built uh, in these two countries. And anyone that's been to India or to China can really attest to the huge network of roads or railway or, air, or airports, right? 
So just think about that and the huge amount of energy consumed just in the transportation sector. So the world chose the high energy scenario, leaving huge inequalities at the global and local scales. This inequality now spreads into the future for generations who must grapple with our overconsumption of fossil fuels like there was no tomorrow. Okay, so all this huge building out of infrastructure, we can just label it as transport infrastructure in this example, was paid for by future generations by relying so much on fossil fuels. So the tragedy for our Earth, reframing Vonnegut's perspective of events on Vitsuna, was the technological developments that resulted in the mining, mining, let me back up there, right? Because this is actually really fun. So was the technological developments that resulted in the mining of time through fossil fuel extraction, okay? So here I'm, I'm basically building on Vonnegut's um, kind of distillation of, of time and connection with fossil fuel and by burning fossil fuels, we, we shorten our span basically on, on the earth, right? Through this environmental, envir environmental degradation that's going on, okay? And now I, I want to look at Sen uh, kind of through a philosophical uh, point of view because there are two central ways to assess an equ equitable energy transition, okay? So there's a lot of, uh, and here it could be clear in what I've written, but, but basically I want to shift it a bit to what is an equitable energy transition, okay? So we have the two routes, like a high resource route or low resource route. Um, but, and we also have the spatial inequality across Earth that can be observed over the past 50 years. But now I want to kind of shift it to maybe an inequality in time, okay? So the inequality in time starts to understand that um, future generations begin to lose out because of our overconsumption over the past 50 years. So, drawing from Sen, then, the central ethical issue for the analysis of equity are, he has the first point, why, why have equality? Okay, so we switch from equity, equality. And number two is equality of what? So what are we even talking about, about equality? Equality for who and for what, right? So today, the re representation in the above map uh, showing the energy footprints in countries um, and the delinking from GDP growth. Uh, to date, the representation in the above map indicates the spatial inequalities of countries of who has and who is consuming unsustainable levels of fossil fuels. Now, the pursuit of, of a decoupled energy consumption from economic growth is perceived to be the pinnacle of a sustainable energy system. Okay, so this is great, right? We're, and this is the goal, right? Here we go. Sorry, I wrote it down here. The goals of 2050 to be carbon neutral are held up by politicians, scientists, and the believers in climate change as a means to save our Earth. So to save our Earth by 2050, we got to be totally carbon neutral. It's the goal of the EU. This is what we got to do. China is pledging to do this. I think even phase out coal by 2049 or something like that. Something lame, not 2050. But, um, right, so 2050, we're all going to be okay. But, yeah, basically we all know we're all going to be dead in 2050. So uh, I'm looking at Sun here because this argument answers Sun's first question. Why equality, right? So we don't, the, the answer is, so we don't all die from, from climate change. 
Okay, but this question was important in the 1970s when we could have chosen a low or energy or high energy scenario. 50 years later, the question is moot, right? So we don't need to argue over why do we need to have have equality. Okay, now what、well, we can still argue over it's fine, but I propose something a little bit more challenging for us to answer, right? Something to aim. And maybe even speed up. Maybe my purpose here is to say we got to do a lot more in a lot shorter time. So the question now is equality of what? Because for Sen, different perspectives lead to different views on equality, right? And equality and maybe liberties, equality of rights, utilities, incomes, resources, primary goods, need fulfillment, etc. He outlines. So Sen sets off his approach from the notion of a utility function. Here's、a little economic theory for you: utility function, and this is where the gain of liberty,、uh, because in the role of looking at equality, there's always liberty, freedom to talk about. Liberty for someone is due to the loss of liberty for another. So, like, there's a finite amount of liberty. Okay, and but nonetheless, though, I think taking this and Sun kind of argues against this this utility utilitarian approach that there's only a finite amount of liberty. Okay, and I, and I agree with him. Right, we can say there's not a finite amount of liberty. We all kind of, in a sense,、um, can benefit through being more free. No one's going to lose out. So nonetheless, that through Elitch's interpretation and considering consideration of the one systems approach of the Earth. There is a cap on natural resources and a limit to CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. Okay, that like we could just say yes, right? So we got to limit our global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade, and now we're on the path of three degrees centigrade. Okay,、um, the distinction is important as there may not be a utilitarian limit to liberties and rights for people, but there is a limit to natural resource consumption. Okay, and the technological technological methods may differ. So consumed in a car, factory, or power plant, but energy consumption is tied to the amount consumed in a period of time. The faster the consumption, the faster the economic development in all countries. At some point in time, the closer we come to running out of time to retain a biodiverse ecosystem supporting life. So the goal, our goal, basically, is to ensure a bio. A huge amount of biodiversity on on the Earth, a healthy ecosystem on the Earth. Okay, and and I kind of gloss over some some issues in here, but basically, what we're talking about is is that we need to not just think about energy resources in in a finite way, right? There's only so much, and in fact, of course, we know like there's so much oil and coal. In the ground that we can't use it, so it's just a huge amount. But still, it's a it's a fine there's a finite amount that we can actually use and keep the earth healthy. Okay, and I, and I would even extend that to other things like uh, plastics, uh, which come from oil, of course. So every anything we actually produce, not just、uh, kind of use in transportation or use for heating. But but objects that we we produce, right? They come from the earth. We can only consume so much of those. So the discussion needs to shift from a spatially uneven development of Earth societies and resources, like we had the Chinese and Indians compared to the Americans, since the Earth is one system, it's not restricted by fences and border guards. So now the question is one of uneven remaining. Let me rephrase this because I'm still working it out. Now the question is one of uneven remaining time on this Earth. 
So as the climate change cycle speeds up floods, drought, and temperature shifts, the spatially uneven process is not one of economic development, but retention of habitable, habitable living areas. Coastal zones are reclaimed by the sea, forested areas burn while shifting temperature zones alter how people live and influence whether they can stay in their homes. So I'm painting here a picture of crisis, environmental crisis, uh, really everyone affected some way, but there's, there's a very strong element of time in this, right? So there's an uneven amount of time remaining on, on this earth, okay? And the question then in the 2020s is an equality of time, not equality of place. So before we looked at, at the earth in a spatial manner, okay? Here's the map, here's where people are making more money or the GDP is higher, okay? But actually, how much time do we all have left on this planet? So like the creatures of Vitsunia, we've ate, burned, polluted, and drank our future away. So there is always a future, but in 50 years, we just consumed the future health of all beings on Earth. The hangover from this era of overconsumption is now upon us. Spatially, inequality is marked not, not only by who has benefited the most from fossil fuel consumption, but which, community, which communities can stay intact and in place. So where are the safe places on the Earth? So if you want to talk about spatial inequality... Where are the safe places on Earth for the future? Okay, so it's a question of time. I mean, essentially, other places are going to explode or be uninhabitable, right? But it's a question of time. Okay, now it's just a question of time. So our global society lived like there is no tomorrow. The energy policies adopted since the 1970s, emphasizing fossil fuel use, were backed by powerful technological developments and political guide, guide, guidance to ensure economic development over sustainable development of the Earth's resources. Inequality increased as countries and societies saw the rise of elites consuming unsustainable levels of energy and products. And again, I just want to emphasize, I use the word elites here kind of in an unhinged way, in an unanalyzed um, way, uh, but it's a good in the context of things here, it's a way to frame it, okay? The social inequality we examine is not caused by the transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy, but through the consumption of fossil fuels to power a hyper-environmentally hyper unsustainable economic development. The energy system, including transport and manufacturing, is created to ensure higher-income social groups are able to benefit from low energy, energy prices and in turn low-cost consumer goods trickling down in the form of used clothes, used appliances, and polluting second- or third-hand cars. What we perceive as wealth in our garbage cans or recycling bins of mountains of plastic and discarded food is paid for by our common future, right? Anyone that's gone shopping at Ikea, okay, yes, they do more for the environment now, but still, right? You get all this plastic and yes, recyclable cardboard, but what do you do with it all, right? Um, and as Vonnegut puts the nearing collapse of Vitsunia, here I'm beginning to conclude, as Vonnegut puts the nearing collapse of Vitsunia, by the time he, the judge, was 50, only a few weeks of future remained. Great rips of reality were appearing everywhere. Okay, I just have to say this kind of spoke to me because it's almost my birthday. Uh, I'll be 47. So... 
so I don't know. I just identify with this through my my lifetime. The Earth has fallen apart, basically. And what 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 can we do? It's not a question of inequality and spatial inequality so much now, right? But it's a question of time. Now, how much time do we actually have left? So, with these great rips of reality seen in our changing Earth, from the extraction of species to melting polar ice caps, comes a more fundamental debate over the inequality of time ra- rather than spatial inequality. We should not see. Not, we should not see we have 30 years to finally build an equi- equitable energy system by eliminating CO2 emissions from fossil fuels, right? So, oh yeah, we got till 2050 and we got to do all this stuff. No, no, no. We, we're screwed, right? If we're going to wait till 2050, which it seems like, yeah, we probably will, um, just because of the inaptitude and lack of, of willingness to change things. Yeah, we have to actually start dealing with this this idea of rips in time and how things are falling apart. So rather, we need to implement three key steps to repair the, the, the rips in time. First, so these are my suggestions. First, repair the environmental damage over the past 50 years when we chose a high energy scenario. So that mainly what I have in mind is... Um, Addressing and rebuilding the envir- the natural environment, okay? So habitats for for animals and, and everything, right? Saving the whales, all this green stuff. Yeah, we actually have to do that, right? Second, we need to build a low energy system that is equitable by reducing overconsumption by the haves and assist the have-nots. So all groups equally draw from the same resource budget and not utilize the future's resources, Okay, and here what I mean basically is let's look at uh, energy as a limited finite resource. Okay, there was the, always the idea before of peak oil. There was only so much oil to go around, but we can only consume so much energy. And getting to my, and it doesn't matter whether it's renewable energy or not. Okay, we only, and this goes to my final point. Okay, and finally stop fooling ourselves that we can have a technological fix to our energy requirements. So social values and the value we place on environmental resources must must change. Social inequality is not caused by a shortage of natural resources, but the distribution of these. Okay, so we can have renewable energy, right? We have it now, uh, but yet there's still a huge inequality over access to having lights on or things like this, right? So it's not a question of technology or resources. It's a question of mobilization of people. So distribution relies on humans and their social institutions. And social institutions, we can say, are both formal, the role of the state, state institution, but also informal, right? How society structures itself, how people interact, the values that society has. So the collapse of Vitsunia was because they ate their time. It seems like we've eaten ours. So overall, I just want to say I paint a dark future. Um, and, and I don't think I'm off on that. Okay. And, but but it, it's a dark future. But on the sense, we, we have to also understand that we, by looking at a finite amount of time on the earth, we can begin maybe to repair this time or repair the past damage we did to these, to how time is consumed, right? How much CO2 was consumed in the past, how much deforestation occurred. So how do we repair that? How do we fix things up, both for the environment and for society? So that's where this idea of an equitable 
energy system or equity in the energy system is is so important because not not just about the people on the earth now but future generations as well so with that i conclude thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the my energy 2050 podcast please follow the my energy 2050 podcast on itunes or stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn.